today is Ezekiel chapter 5, 1 to 17, and I've titled it A Sword Against Jerusalem. I'll just pray, we'll get going. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the rock solid foundation that it is. It is the source of truth, it is your written word. It will lead us into truth. And as we read it, your Holy Spirit will then bring it back to remembrance and we can apply it and we can share it and our faith grows. So we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is Ezekiel chapter 5, 1 to 17, and I've titled it A Sword Against Jerusalem. We're going through the book of Ezekiel. And this chapter is continuing to describe God's judgment on Jerusalem. So we'll, we'll see what that means as we go through. Now we always do our memory verse. This is like the main verse that captures the heart and soul of the book of Ezekiel. So let's all read this together. Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Fantastic. So last week in chapter 4, Ezekiel preached his first action sermon. And if you remember, he got a clay tablet, like what they used to use to write on back in those days, and he drew the city of Jerusalem. And then around the city of Jerusalem, he drew a siege mound, which was a big mound of dirt they'd put up against the outside wall to try and get over. And battering rams, they use a big log or something similar to smash the wall to try and get in. And he also had the camps of the enemy. The enemy was camped all around the outside of the city of Jerusalem, so no one could escape it was a siege. And the reason is because the people living in Jerusalem and Judah were unfaithful to God. And we're going to find out more about why they were unfaithful and how they were unfaithful today. And God is forced to discipline them. They refused to repent. They refused to turn from their sin and turn to God. And so God had to discipline them. He had to judge them. And Ezekiel described what it would be like living in the desperate times of famine and disease when the Babylonian army besieged the city of Jerusalem and they literally began to starve to death. And now, chapters 5 through 7 continue this description of this judgment, but we get some nuggets out of this as well. It's a bit depressing reading about judgment, but it's good for us to understand that sin has consequences. So... Ezekiel 5, 1-17 And you, son of man, take a sharp sword, take it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take scales, or a balance, to weigh and divide the hair. You shall burn with fire one-third in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are finished. Then you shall take one-third and strike around it with the sword and one-third you shall scatter in the wind. I will draw out a sword after them. You shall also take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment. Then take some of them again and throw them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there a fire will go out into all the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem 
I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. She has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. For they have refused my judgments and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are all around you, have not walked in my statutes, nor kept my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Indeed I, even I, am against you, and will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And I will do among you what I have never done, and the like of which I will never do again, because of all your abominations. Therefore fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers, and I will execute judgments among you, and all of you who remain I will scatter to all the winds. Therefore as I live, says the Lord God, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations or idols, Therefore I will also diminish you. My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. One third of you shall die of the pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. And one third shall fall by the sword all around you. And I will scatter another third to all the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them. Thus my anger shall be spent, and I will cause my fury to rest upon them and I will be avenged, and they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal, when I have spent my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a waste and a reproach among the nations that are all around you, in the sight of all who pass by. So it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson, and an astonishment to the nations that are all around you, when I execute judgments among you in anger, and in fury and in furious rebukes, I, the Lord, have spoken. When I send against them the terrible arrows of famine, which shall be for destruction, which I shall send to destroy you, I will increase the famine upon you and cut off your supply of bread. I will send against you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. <laughs> Pretty heavy, eh? So again, sin has consequences. So we're going to take verses 1 to 4, and I've called this the prophecy of the thirds, illustrated by Ezekiel cutting his hair. i just read those four verses. And you, son of man, take a sharp sword, take it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take scales to weigh and divide the hair. You shall burn with fire one-third in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are finished. Then you shall take one-third and strike around it with the sword, and one-third you shall scatter in the wind. I will draw out a sword after them. You shall also take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment. Then take some of them again and throw them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there a fire will go out into all the house of Israel. So in verse 1 there it says, take a sharp sword, take it as a barber's razor. (laughs) So this is the fourth 
prophetic demonstration of coming judgment. And can you imagine hacking off your hair and your beard with a sword? Imagine the people (laughs) watching Ezekiel. You'd have to sharpen it really sharp. Otherwise, you'd pull your hair out instead of cutting it, right? So you'd sharpen it really sharp, and then the people are going, what is he doing? And then he starts using a sword to cut his beard off. So that would be just a sight to behold. I've never shaved using a sword. Has anyone here? Okay, I didn't think so. But why use a sword? Because this acted out prophecy concerned the judgment that the Babylonian army would bring upon Jerusalem. This was an army which was going to do this damage to the people left in Jerusalem. Now, culturally, cutting off your hair was either a sign of mourning or a sign of disgrace. I've got the references there in your notes. And it was, for Ezekiel, a difficult thing to do because he was a priest. And the priests had specific instructions that they had to have their hair in a particular way. And you can see Leviticus 21.5 and 19.27. They're not to have bald spots, they're not to have uneven hair and all that kind of stuff. So basically, for Ezekiel to chop off all his beard and his hair was a large sacrifice for him. And then it says, take scales to weigh and divide the hair. So God wanted Ezekiel to divide the hair into thirds, and he used a scale to make sure it was divided accurately. And in verse 2 it says, burn with fire, one third in the midst of the city. So after Ezekiel finished his siege... Remember the 430 days lying on his side, which you talked about last week? Ezekiel was to act out this prophecy. And why? Well, it very powerfully contradicted the false promises of deliverance predicted by the many false prophets. The false prophets were saying, Babylon will be defeated, we're all going to go back to Jerusalem, everything's going to be okay, don't stress, don't worry about repenting, don't listen to those doomsday preachers. That's basically what was happening. There's a battle between the prophets here. Who are you going to listen to? And of course the people didn't listen to Jeremiah or Ezekiel. They listened to the false prophets instead and they paid for it with their lives. So this is what Ezekiel was asked to do with his hair. Burn one third in the midst of the city of Jerusalem. Strike one third with the sword, which represents being killed by the sword. So one third would die in battle. One third would die from famine. That's like burning in the midst of the city of Jerusalem. And one third would be scattered. Which means that when the Babylonians finally broke down the walls of Jerusalem, there'd be one third of the people still alive. Not very healthy, but still alive. And they would be scattered and they would be persecuted as they went out. So just because you survived doesn't mean the pain was over. Now, what does it mean by in the midst of the city? Well, there's two views on this. One is that Ezekiel went actually to Jerusalem and did this dramatization in Jerusalem. Or it could just mean that he did it next to his clay tablet with his drawing of the siege and the armies and everything. So whichever way, the word would have got out about Ezekiel's strange behavior and this whole message would have got out to the people. There was good communication back then. And verse 3, it says, Also take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment. Then take some of them again and throw them into the midst of the fire. So basically, once 
Nebuchadnezzar and his army got through the walls of Jerusalem and took the one-third back to Babylon, he would actually leave just a handful of people, maybe a few, a hundred or two hundred people. I'm not sure. It doesn't actually say. But just a small number of people. And it was the very poorest of the land, the vine dressers and farmers and things like that. And basically, throw some of them into the fire means that life for them would be difficult. The ones who are actually left in the land, a very small number, would be a hard life. And you can read the fulfillment of that in 2 Kings 25, 22 to 26, and Jeremiah chapters 40 to 44. And so you can see what happened to those people. And it was, it was suffering. Throwing into the fire represents judgment. It represents continued persecution and, uh, and a hard life. Now, in verse 5, we come to a very important verse. It's about Israel. What's the purpose of Israel? Verse 5 says, Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem, and I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. So, Jerusalem is a capital of the nation of Israel, as you probably already know. And God used Israel to make a name for himself. So, can you think of how God used Israel to make a name for himself in the Old Testament? Yep, the conquest of Joshua, the exodus from Egypt, the mighty nation and the kingdom established by King David where he was basically reigning over all the surrounding nations. So God made a name for himself through the nation of Israel. And I've got a verse to read to demonstrate this. 2 Samuel seven twenty three to 24 And who is like your people, like Israel? the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people to make for himself a name and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. For you have made your people, Israel, your very own people forever and you, Lord, have become their God. Israel is also God's chosen vessel to bring salvation to all the world through the promised Messiah. So what's the purpose of Israel? Well, for God to make himself known to the nations, but also to bring salvation to everybody, the nations and the Israelites. The Messiah was first promised in Genesis 3.15, and that's the seed of the woman would bruise Satan's head. That's a mortal wound. And then in Genesis, with the promises concerning the seed or Messiah given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and if you follow the thread, it goes to 2 Samuel 7, where God promises that the seed or Messiah will be one of King David's descendants. And of course, we know that Mary and Joseph were both descendants of King David by the genealogies in Matthew and Luke. Now, Israel was God's example to the nations. So, what if I disobeyed? Is God's plan ruined? No. God gave them blessings and curses. If they obeyed God, then they would be blessed beyond measure. If they obeyed God, the blessings that would follow their obedience would be massive. And people would have to go, that's impossible. You know, how can there be no miscarriages? How can there be no sickness? How can all the crops be so bumper that, you know, they don't have room to store their crops? How can they have complete victory over their enemies. It's just, you know, nothing's going wrong in that nation. God's blessing them in every single way. It's just not natural. And that's the point. It's not. It's God. 
But the opposite is also true. With great privilege comes great responsibility. Just like they receive blessings beyond measure, they would also receive severe punishment if they turned against God. It's a double-edged sword. Because with great privilege comes great responsibility. Now, this is another way that God makes a name for himself. The people in the surrounding nations would know that God is God, that he is the God of Israel. So consider what Nebuchadnezzar and he's basically the top general in the Babylonian army. And he said something very interesting to Jeremiah after the Babylonians had defeated Jerusalem and were taking most of the remaining people, that is the third who didn't die from war and famine, captive back to Babylon. So he said to Jeremiah, and I'm just going to get the context reading verse 1 as well, Jeremiah 41 to 3. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah when he had been taken when he had taken him bound in chains among all who were carried away captive from Jerusalem and Judah, who were carried away captive to Babylon. Now listen to this. And the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God has pronounced this doom on this place. Now the Lord has brought it and has done just as he said. Because you people have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed his voice, therefore this thing has come upon you. Can you see how this pagan army general doesn't attribute the victory over Jerusalem to his own army? He even attributes the victory of the Babylonians over Jerusalem as this was God's will. The prophets had said that everything would happen in a certain way. Everything did happen that way. And he's saying, yep, this was all God. The nations knew that God was the God of Israel and that God was real and God was in control. Even when Israel was disobedient. So now the Lord has brought it and has done just as he said, because you people have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed his voice. Therefore, this thing has come upon you. So remember the prophet's message spread far and wide. These guys had a big audience. Jerusalem itself is also a very important place. This is another purpose for Jerusalem and Israel. Jerusalem itself is a very important place because it was where God chose to redeem fallen mankind back to himself. You might remember in Genesis 22, God told Abraham to take his only son, whom he loved, Isaac, to a place called Mount Moriah. Did you realize that that is the same as Jerusalem? It's the same place? So about 2,000 years before the actual crucifixion, God provided a preview of coming attractions when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son, whom he loved, Isaac. Now we know that God didn't actually allow Abraham to kill Isaac. He provided an alternative sacrifice, the ram. What does that represent? Well, God will provide himself a sacrifice, and that happened 2,000 years later. God would provide himself as a sacrifice. God would send his own son, Jesus, whom he loved, 
but he wouldn't hold back the knife. Jesus, as a man, became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29, when he allowed himself to be crucified in our place. And I quote here, Jerusalem, the chosen city, was the spiritual center of the earth and, indeed, of the universe since Jesus Christ died there. And that's by a guy called Wright. I'm going to read some verses from Colossians which illustrate this. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, your sin. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. In other words, as a man. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Isn't that awesome? As believers, we stand before God, we are lifted up, we are in the heavenlies, we've been raised up to be in the heavenlies right now. That's our position. And God sees us as perfect because we have the righteousness of Christ. And it was all done in Jerusalem when Jesus died on the cross. Now, another thing that's special about Israel is that God gave them the scriptures. And there's lots of other blessings too. So I'll just read a couple of verses from Romans which summarize it for you. Romans 3, 1 and 2 and 9, 4 to 5. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is a prophet of circumcision? Much in every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. That means the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. And going on to chapter 9, verse 4. Who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises? Of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So basically, Israel had all these advantages. They should have been obedient to God. They had every opportunity, everything going for them to obey God, but they refused. So again, with privilege, with all this revelation and with all this blessing, with all this opportunity, comes great responsibility and accountability. So... Let's go and see how God describes his judgment. Verses 6 to 10. She has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. For they have refused my judgments and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are all around you, have not walked in my statutes, not kept my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I, even I, am against you, and will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And I will do among you what I have never done, and the like of which I will never do again. Because of all your abominations, your idols, idol worship, Therefore, fathers will eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers, and I will execute judgments among you, and all of you who remain I will scatter to all the winds. 
So in verse 6 it says, She has rebelled, Jerusalem has rebelled against my judgment by doing wickedness more than the nations. Again, how can this city, this nation, who had all these blessings, end up being so far from God? How can they end up being more wicked than even the surrounding nations? With this heritage, like with Abraham and the fathers, and the miracles and the victories, you know, with Joshua, and all this great heritage, and it still went bad. Now, there's an application here. We have been given great privilege. We have been given the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We have been given a great heritage. But the same thing that happened to the nation of Israel can happen to us as believers if we allow sin to have a foothold in our lives as individuals and in some circumstances as a church. So a Christian with a hard heart is capable of even greater degrees of sin than a non-believer. However, they are also much more responsible and accountable. So just because you're a Christian, it doesn't mean you can't sin. If you allow sin to harden your hearts, then we could really make a mess of it. Hebrews three twelve and 13. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. And that very accurately describes what happened to the nation of Israel. If it can happen to them, it can happen to us. So while we don't like reading these kind of passages, it's actually a good reminder to us of the consequences of sin. Even forgiven sin has consequences. It's not our salvation we're going to lose, but we will lose our reward and we will make life difficult for ourselves and others and grieve God. Verse 8, Indeed, I, even I, am against you and will execute judgments in your midst. Now, you read that and you think, has God turned his back on Israel? Has God finished with Israel? No. God will never, ever finish with the nation of Israel. There's too many verses, there's too many passages in the scriptures where God promises he will never ever give up on them no matter how bad they are so what does it mean when it says i'm against you well he's disciplining them it's very simple now one of the evidences that god did not turn his back on them completely and he did restore them and he will take them back is now where is the nation of israel or how is it it's doing well isn't it it's like a superpower in the Middle East. God brought them back miraculously. He made them a nation in one day miraculously. God is fulfilling the prophecies, which we'll get to sometime <laughs> in Ezekiel, when God will restore the land, make it fruitful, protect them, and all those things. It's all predicted. So when we get there, you go, wow, everything that's happened to Israel was predicted? Yeah. So basically, God will never, ever turn away from his people long term. Yes, he will have to discipline them and it will feel like he's against them and yes, he's against their sin, but he's not against them. So if we sin, if we neglect our relationship with God, it will feel like God is against us as we grieve the Holy Spirit and definitely God is against our sin. We invite God's loving discipline upon ourselves and you can read Hebrews 12, 1-13. A few quotes here. 
uh, which make this clear. Because of their great sin, God promised to personally bring judgment against them. Even though it would largely come through the instrument of the Babylonian army, it was God's judgment upon them. That was David Guzik. Another one from Maya. It is an awful thing when those who have sinned against conspicuous privilege and opportunity come under the rod. Their punishment is infinitely heavier than that of such as have never known. So there's a principle in the word where the more you know, the more accountable you are. Another quote from Paul. Though the old world perished by water, Noah's flood, and the judgment was greater in its extent, and Sodom was destroyed by fire, yet neither one was so lingering a death. These poor Jews were long dying and felt themselves dying. So basically just illustrating how this was a more severe judgment than even the flood or Sodom and Gomorrah. And Israel suffering for her sins under God's righteous wrath would be an object lesson to the nations. The heathen would be amazed because they had not seen a national deity so deal with the people who professed his worship. Remember, they still professed to be Jews and still did their temple sacrifices right to the end, in addition to all that other stuff. So basically, even though they were doing the wrong thing, God would still be glorified. Verse 9, it says, Therefore fathers shall eat their sons. Now, this is interesting because God had predicted or promised that this would happen if they were disobedient. It was part of the physical blessings and curses for Israel. Blessings if they obeyed, curses if they disobeyed. And those remaining in Jerusalem would be reduced to horrible suffering, even cannibalism. And this is a prediction in Leviticus 26-29. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And in verse 10 it says, And all of you who remain, I will scatter to all the winds. Those rebels who survived wouldn't be established and planted in Babylon, like the ones who were taken captive in the two earlier exiles, like Daniel and Ezekiel, for example, but would rather be scattered everywhere and live a miserable life. Now, there's a fairly long passage in Deuteronomy, which we're going to read together, and it accurately describes everything that is happening now. And so, what was it, 800 years before? God predicted exactly what was going to happen. He predicted that, yes, you are going to be disobedient, or when you are disobedient, these things will happen to you. So let's just read it, and we'll find out. It gives us a good perspective of what they're going through. So Deuteronomy 28, 49 to 68. The Lord will bring a distant nation against you from the end of the earth. Babylon was a long way away. And it will swoop down on you like a vulture. It is a nation whose language you do not understand. A fierce and heartless nation that shows no respect for the old and no pity for the young. Its armies will devour your livestock and crops, and you will be destroyed. They will leave you no grain, new wine, olive oil, calves or lambs, and you will starve to death. They will attack your cities until all the fortified walls in your land, the walls you trusted to protect you, are knocked down. They will attack all the towns in the land that the Lord God has given you. The siege and terrible distress of the enemy's attack will be so severe that you will eat the flesh of your own sons and daughters whom the Lord God has given you. The most tender-hearted man among you will have no compassion for his own brother, his beloved wife, and his surviving children. 
he will refuse to share with them the flesh he is devouring, the flesh of one of his own children, because he has nothing else to eat during the siege and terrible distress that your enemy will inflict on you on all your towns. The most tender and delicate woman among you, so delicate she would not so much as touch the ground with her foot, will be selfish toward the husband she loves and toward her own son or daughter. She will hide from them the afterbirth and the new baby she has born, so that she herself can secretly eat them. She will have nothing else to eat during the siege and terrible distress that your enemy will inflict on all your towns. Now, I've italicized this next bit. This is the reason why all these things happen. Verse 58. If you refuse to obey all the words of instructions that are written in this book, and if you do not fear the glorious and awesome name of the Lord your God, then the Lord will overwhelm you and your children with indescribable plagues. Remember? Awesome blessings, but indescribable plagues. These plagues will be intense and without relief making you miserable and unbearably sick. He will afflict you with all the diseases of Egypt that you feared so much, and you will have no relief. The Lord will afflict you with every sickness and plague there is, even those not mentioned in this book of instruction, until you are destroyed. Though you become as numerous as the stars in the sky, few of you will be left. So remember, there's never complete destruction, there's always going to be remnant. Because you would not listen to the Lord your God. Just as the Lord has found great pleasure in causing you to prosper and multiply, the Lord will find pleasure in destroying you. Take that as the sense being that justice would be served. You will be torn from the land you are about to enter and occupy. Remember this was given before they went into the land 800 years earlier. For the Lord will scatter you among the nations from one end of the earth to the other. There you will worship foreign gods that neither you nor your ancestors have known. God's made of wood and stone. There among those nations you will find no peace or place to rest, and the Lord will cause your heart to tremble, your eyesight to fail, and your soul to despair. Your life will constantly hang in the balance. You will live night and day in fear, unsure if you will survive. In the morning you will say, If only it were night! And in the evening you will say, If only it were morning! For you will be terrified by the awful horrors you see around you. Then the Lord will send you back to Egypt in ships to a destination I promised you would never see again. There you will offer to sell yourselves to your enemies as slaves, but no one will buy you. Now, you look at verse 68 there and you think, well, that doesn't fit. They didn't get sent back to Egypt as slaves. Well, guess what? It wasn't fulfilled with the Babylonian invasion, but go forward 600 years to 70 AD, and it was fulfilled when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. So I've got a quote from David Guzik and explains how this happened, and I'm just pointing this out because it's just amazing how God, 1,400 years prior, predicted exactly what would happen. So just to show you that the Bible is true, and prophecy does prove that God is outside of time and he's in control. So the last verse there in verse 68 says that the Lord will send you back to Egypt in ships to a destination I promise you never see again. There you will offer to sell yourselves to your enemies as slaves but no one will buy you. So this is what happened. So after Jesus died and rose again and then 30 
seven years later, the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans. Okay, So in this siege, this is David Guzik, of Jerusalem, hunger became so great that many tried to escape the walls and forage for food. 500 or more were captured and crucified daily. The soldiers, out of rage and hatred, amused themselves by nailing their prisoners in different postures, and so great was their numbers that space could not be found for the crosses, nor crosses for the bodies. And that was a quote from Josephus. David Guzik continues, More than 600,000 died from starvation, and their dead bodies were dumped over the walls of the city. In total, more than a million died, and 97,000 were captured with most of the captives being shipped as slaves to Egypt. The promise of Deuteronomy 28.68 was tragically fulfilled. Then the Lord will send you back to Egypt in ships. There you will offer to sell yourselves to enemies as slaves, but no one will buy you. (laughs) This happened as too many Jewish slaves gutted the Egyptian slave market and no one could buy all the available slaves. Just as the Bible said, so it happened. The prophecy about the famine wasn't just fulfilled once, but twice. So here's a principle in prophecy. You can have multiple fulfillments of the same prophecy. And this is a good example of dual fulfillment. The Babylonians and then the Romans. Now, we're going to move on to a very important concept here. Why God is judging Jerusalem. And the reason is it's spiritual adultery. And we get application from this too. So verses 11 and 12 in Ezekiel 5. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will also diminish you. My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. One third of you shall die of the pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst, and one third shall fall by the sword all around you, and I will scatter another third to all the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them. So, verse 11. Therefore, as I live, Why did God say that? Well, all the other idols were dead, right? They can't talk. They can't do anything. But we serve a living God. So the Jews turned away from the living God to serve dead idols. So our God creates, speaks, knows, loves and acts. And the Jews back then turned away from the living God. Verse 11 also says, Because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things. So, how had Israel sinned worse than the pagan nations? Well, here's one example, which highlights the depth of their rebellion against God. They defiled God's own temple. So, later on, as we go through the book of Ezekiel, we're going to find out exactly what they did. But we'll wait for later. For the details, what they did was put foreign gods or idols inside and around the temple. So why was this such an insult to God? Why is God making a big deal of having idols in the temple and around the temple, and not just that, but around Jerusalem and around all Israel? Well, the people belonged to God. God had redeemed them. God had bought them. They were God's people. God had lavished his love on them, but they refused to love him. Instead, they were unfaithful, choosing other lovers, other gods or idols, in place of God. So remember, as an aside here, those idols, they actually represent demons. And it's demon worship. And you can read Leviticus 17.7. Shows that to be true. And other references. So I want to try and help you put this 
into perspective. See how God feels about this unfaithfulness. You come home and you walk into your house and you find in your bed your spouse sleeping with another person. Oh, okay. Imagine the rage and indignation you would feel, the betrayal, the rightful jealousy, the broken trust, the rejection, and the anger. How would you respond? Well, God has been putting up with this for centuries. He is so merciful. He's so patient. And just keep in mind God's heart in all this. We read this and we think, oh, God is so cruel. Look at all he's doing to his people. Consider 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. So, why did God wait so long to judge them? He was giving them more time to repent. But judgment needs to happen. What happens if we don't discipline our kids? They get worse and worse and more and more spoiled. And we'll end up destroying them if we don't discipline them. And so God has to step in at some stage and discipline his kids, discipline his nation. Otherwise, their sin would destroy them. So judging them with an evil pagan nation was the only thing left for God to do. It was an act of love and mercy. So we haven't read it. But if you go back through the history of Israel, God has previously warned them many times. He has disciplined them with many smaller, less tragic disciplines like drought, failed crops, like crop diseases, locusts, physical diseases, all that kind of stuff. But they never learned their lesson. They didn't listen. They never repented with those disciplines. So when they wouldn't listen to God, when God spoke to them, God used the world to discipline his own people. So this is a horrible, shameful, embarrassing way to be judged by the world. The Israelites were meant to be the ones reaching out to the world, telling them that God loved them and that God had a plan of salvation and that his way was the right way. And instead, the world is judging them. The world is saying, hey, you've sinned against your own God. And therefore, I will also diminish you. How? Well, the three ways. One third should die of the pestilence. That's disease and famine. One third should be killed by the sword that in battle. And one third should be scattered to all the winds with a sword following them. So the application for us today. The same is true for believers individually and as a church corporately. If we refuse to repent of our sin as God disciplines us directly. Now, you know, and I know, that when we sin, the Holy Spirit brings conviction to our hearts through the Word of God and makes us uncomfortable. Right? Now, we can respond to that and we can repent, turn back to God, or we can choose to harden our heart. We can choose to harden our heart and continue in that sin. And then God will allow us to fall and will be shamed in the eyes of the world. Like God did with Israel, he will allow the world to judge us. And we as believers will be held in contempt by the very unbelievers we were meant to be ambassadors of God too. And again, what a terrible example we would be. What shame and disgrace we can bring upon ourselves and upon God. But I want to point out here that there's always mercy and forgiveness waiting when we do repent. 
Okay. This can be a <laughs> condemning thing here. It doesn't look like there's any relief for the people of Israel. And sometimes when we fall into sin, it feels like there's no relief. But consider King David with Bathsheba. He was judged by the nations. It says that all the nations were blaspheming God because of what David did. Samson with Delilah, you know, he told her the secret of his strength and she cut his hair. He was captured, eyes put out, and finally the Philistines had victory over Samson. But although both men were disgraced in the eyes of the world, both men were still used by God again. Yes, they did suffer the physical or practical consequences of their sin. Samson was still blind, and David had family problems for the rest of his life. He had a terrible life after that. His family was just a mess, and God said that would happen. So the practical consequences of sin were still there. But God restored David. He continued to be the king. God restored Samson, and God used Samson again to defeat the Philistines. And he killed like 3,000 when he pushed the pillars away and, and the temple fell down. So in the same way, and this is the hope that we have, in the same way Israel will be forgiven and restored and has a glorious future ahead of them. We can see the start of that now with the restoration of the nation of Israel. In the tribulation, we'll have the 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are going around the world. And then in the millennium, the whole nation will be dedicated to God. They have a glorious future waiting for them. So God has not finished with the nation of Israel. And God will not finish with us too. There's always mercy and forgiveness when we choose to repent. Now, verse 13. God's anger will be spent. Thus shall my anger be spent, and I will cause my fury to rest upon them, and I will be avenged. And they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal when I have spent my fury upon them. So I want to focus on this word, in my zeal, in verse 13. It's a Hebrew word, gina, or gina, and it suggests ardor, passionate feeling. And the root meaning is to grow purple in the face. This is a quote from Taylor. And therefore covers both zeal and jealousy, as well as resentment and indignation at an insult done to the honor of oneself or of another. So there's a lot of meaning behind this word, in my zeal. Indignation, an insult done to the honor of oneself or another. They had insulted God's honor by being disobedient to him. So it's important that we understand that God really hates sin. It makes him angry. And our application. This helps us to understand why Jesus' suffering on the cross was so severe. The wrath of God, God's anger against sin, was poured out on Jesus. Now we can see against the Israelites how severe God's wrath was against their sin, right? Imagine the sin of the world poured out on Jesus. God's indignation, his wrath, his, in his zeal, yeah. So basically, the good news is that because the cup of God's wrath was fully poured out on Jesus, and you can see Mark 14.36, as believers, we are now free from God's judgment and wrath if we repent and believe the gospel. Mark 1.15 So this means that we must turn from our sin and trust that Jesus' death on the cross was a full payment for the sins of all mankind. 1 John 2.2 2. 
just want to refer to Psalm 7 verse 11. It says, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. And it says in John 3 that the wrath of God abides on the unbeliever. So we need a saviour to save us from the wrath of God. God is justified in being angry with sin. We need a saviour to escape his wrath. And verse 13 says also, They shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it. Now God has warned the people so many times through so many different prophets and so many different ways and so many disciplines that when this final judgment finally happened, the people would know that it was from God. And the nations will know that it's from God. God, through the prophets, had foretold everything that would happen. And verse 13, Thus shall my anger be spent. Now we saw before that God's righteous anger had been building up for many years, and that in mercy had delayed judgment, but the time for judgment had come. However, the discipline would one day be over and relationship restored. Soon God's anger would be turned away and they could experience God's comfort. It's a promise. We find it in Isaiah 12 verse 1. And in that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Again, will come a day, even when we're sinning, if we repent, when God's anger will be turned away and his discipline will finish and we will experience his comfort. So the application for us is that God's discipline is temporary, so don't give up. If we sin and we're experiencing the discipline of God, don't give up, okay? Don't give up. There will be a time when God's discipline is complete or finished. And if we endure, we will experience a fruit of righteousness. And Hebrews 12.11 from the Amplified Version brings this out very clearly. For the time being, no discipline brings joy, but seems grievous and painful. But afterwards, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's a harvest of fruit which consists in righteousness, in conformity to God's will in purpose, thought and action, resulting in right living and right standing with God. So that's what it means to have this peaceable fruit of righteousness. It's conformity to God's will and purpose, thought, action, resulting in right living and right standing with God. Now, the last few verses here, it talks about the great destruction resulting from God's judgment. So let's read them together. It's 14 to 17. Moreover, I will make you a waste and a reproach among the nations that are all around you in the sight of all who pass by. So it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson, and an astonishment to the nations that are all around you when I execute judgments among you in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken. When I send against them the terrible arrows of famine which shall be for destruction, which I shall send to destroy you. I will increase the famine upon you and cut off your supply of bread. So I will send against you famine and wild beasts, that is, wild animals, lions and tigers and things like that. And they will bereave you. Pestilence, and I looked that up, it's like the word means disease or bubonic plague. And blood shall pass through you, and I'll bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. So when you have famine conditions, you also have a lot of disease. So you're not just dying of hunger, you're also dying of the various diseases that are multiplied in those crowded, unhealthy conditions. So basically God here is reminding us of the different forms of judgment that God would send to discipline the nation of Israel. 
And verse 15 says, So it should be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson, and an astonishment to the nations. So, not just for the nation of Israel, but also as a lesson for the nations. God would make himself known through Israel to the nations by either their obedience or their disobedience. Either way, the nations would know what happened to the nation of Israel could only have been caused by God. In verse 16, terrible arrows is a quote, famine and pestilence are represented as poisoned arrows inflicting death wherever they wound. And lastly, in verse 15 and 17, I, the Lord, have spoken. I, the Lord, have spoken. It repeats it. In 593 BC, Ezekiel pronounced this word of judgment. In 586, his prophetic status was confirmed. A quote by Block there. What does it mean? Well, Ezekiel's saying all this stuff, but it was seven years until it actually happened. And in the meantime, who were the people believing? The false prophets, right? The false prophets were having a great time. Everyone was believing them. They were doing well. However, <laughs> once all these judgments happened, the people knew who the true prophet was. And the people knew that God was in control. And then after that, they would know who to believe. So following on from that is an application for us. Like Ezekiel, we must warn people of coming judgment. And I'm going to read Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. It explains it well. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again. Did you notice that? Do you think that's true in today's age? People are mocking the thought that Jesus is going to come back? Just like in Ezekiel's day, mocking the thought that Babylon would destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple? Continuing in Second Peter, From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. That's basically uniformitism or evolution. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when the ungodly people will be destroyed. So what's our message to this pagan world? Jesus is coming, and when he does, he's going to judge the world when he comes back at the end of the tribulation. Now, there's also the tribulation that we need to warn people about. That is a period of seven years, which is coming soon, following the rapture of the church when the church is taken up, when God will judge the world using a series of judgments which will happen over a period of seven years right before Jesus comes back. At the end of that seven years, Jesus comes back. So, we need to know what the Bible says about prophecy so we can tell people what's going to happen. So when we go, we're taken up, those people will say, oh, all they said, God was going to take them, and God did. They said, you know, a, a few weeks or months, what days after, the Antichrist would sign a peace treaty with Israel for seven years. Ah, that happened. Ah, they said there would be peace initially, but then a world war. It happened. 
So basically, we share with others what's coming. If they don't believe us, that's okay. It's their choice. It's not on us. It's on them. But when it happens, they will know that God had spoken. I, the Lord, have spoken. I, the Lord, have spoken. So we need to be faithful to share what's going to happen about the tribulation and the second coming of Christ. So especially in the tribulation, when it happens, they will know that God is in control. So Father, I thank you for all these things, Lord, that we've read today. As hard as it's, it is to read and as hard as it is to talk about these things, these horrible judgments, Lord, sin has consequences. Lord, if we rebel against you, even as your people, there will be consequences for our sin. However, there is always forgiveness waiting for us when we choose to repent. And so I thank you for the hope that we have that even as believers, if we do sin, like Israel, as God's chosen people sinned, you will not give up on us. We will not lose our salvation. We will continue to be your children, although we will experience the heavy hand of your discipline as you seek to bring us back and so we're not destroyed by our sin. Help us, Father, to not dishonor you with our sin, with our rebellion, and not to be like the Israelites. We have a rich heritage. Help us to use all the benefits, all the gifts, all the privileges that you have given us to serve you and not to despise and treat them as nothing and just do our own thing anyway. Give us a heart that wants to serve you. Give us a, a love for you, a love for your word, and a desire to be pure and to follow you with our whole heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.